Welcome to As Luck Would Have It. My name is Nadia and I'm on the comms team here at Leichhardt Uniting. We are a church based on Gadigal and Wonga land here in Sydney, Australia. You'll find us at Leichhardt Uniting Church Luck on Facebook. Sermons are on YouTube under the same name and you can find more information about our church and our team at leichhardtuniting.org.au. In this episode of As Luck Would Have It, Reverend Radhika Sukuma White is preaching about Deborah from Judges, chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. This is part two of a six-part series originally preached for Lent 2022 on biblical women calling us to repentance. I will be reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, verses 1 to 8, from the New Revised Standard Version. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of God after Ehud died. So the Lord sold them into the hands of King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Goyim. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. At that time, Deborah, a prophetess wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take position at Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet with you by the Wadi Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead you to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Thus ends the reading. Please enjoy the following sermon. Sarah did a most beautiful job with the kids' talk, kind of introducing us to this woman, Deborah, and her story. But I imagine that as well-versed as you might be in stories from the Gospels, parables and stories about Jesus, and to the kind of classic stories of children's Bibles, you may not be as well-versed in stories like today's. So let me tell you a little bit more, set the scene for this story a bit more clearly. So after the Exodus, when the Israelites escaped Egypt and slavery, they were commanded by God to wander through the desert for a generation. This was in order to temper their rebellion and to strengthen their faith in God who had rescued them. So effectively, through that generation, they were fasting from a sense of home, fasting from a sense of power. And then when Moses, their leader, died, Joshua led Israel into the conquest of Canaan, the land that God had apparently promised to their children. But the conquest was messy and riddled with compromise and disobedience. Israelites were living with the people that they were supposed to drive out, displacing their own daughters by marrying their sons to Canaanite women. They were worshipping foreign gods and even slipping back under the rule of pagan leaders rather than their own Hebrew leaders. So they lived as though they were no longer set apart. They lived as though they were no longer God's chosen people. 
In that period, six Israelite leaders arose. They were called judges. And they made a name for themselves among the people of Canaan and the people of Israel. The first two, Othniel and Ehud, were kind of like knights from a fairy tale. It's really great reading. They defeated enemies, they won the hand of maidens, and they used their smarts to play tricks, uh, resulting in Israelite liberation. But a few decades after each judge died, the people of Israel would come back to a common refrain. Again, they would do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, where are we today? I have a a really lovely supervisor that I do professional supervision with each month, and I was reflecting sometime last year that one way that the political and social and religious movements over the last few years have affected me personally is that I have become really wary of token solidarity. I used to get really swept up in changing the filter of my Facebook profile picture to any symbol or phrase or flag, but I kind of avoid that these days. I don't copy and paste statuses. I do attend marches and rallies and protests when it is COVID safe to do so, but I personally avoid, kind of like the plague, speaking up on behalf of other people, even those who might look like me. I find myself, maybe it's an age thing, but I find myself increasingly contemplative, needing more time. I can't do the immediate. I need more time to watch and wait and wonder before I can figure out how my personal story, so my brownness, my cisness, my heterosexuality, age, education, living situation, whatever, how all of those things interact with the larger human story around me. Two years ago, however, I was moved to join a rush of people who changed their Facebook statuses to two words, me too. It was heartbreaking to see how many people, particularly women, said the same thing, me too. Some with stories or exhortations, others with just those two words. It's kind of wild that in language, two very small words can hold such weight, the weight of being pushed aside, of not being listened to, of not being treated as fully human, of being hurt, of losing confidence in our own voices and our own direction. Reading Me Too again and again as I scrolled through Facebook meant knowing that people that I love, people in my life, had been caught inside the teeth of the destructive power systems which rule our world. And posting it myself meant acknowledging that, of course, I have been too. When we face uphill battles like sexism, misogyny and abuse, it's so easy to feel crushed. It's easy to lose sight of our identity, to lose hope that the world can indeed be better. Similarly, two years ago, I worked primarily with Christina McHale to write Luck's statement on anti-racism, which you can find on our website, including three, again, very small, very simple words, Black Lives Matter. Three words, immense weight, not least of which is the implication that it has to be named because it isn't yet true. 
Disciples of Jesus choose to emulate Christ. That's kind of what it means to follow Jesus. To lift up where others tear down. To value and honour where others debase. But it's so hard to do that. Choosing courage, choosing joy is a rough road to walk particularly with the last two years in our rearview mirrors. Sometimes it feels near impossible for us to light the path for others when our own paths feel really dark and disheartening. Right? For that reason, I am grateful for Deborah. So today, on this second Sunday of this season of Lent, where we tune our ears to the voices of specific biblical women, I want to share more about why I am grateful for Deborah. Because sometimes in the midst of darkness and quietness, like in church seasons of Lent, we have to take time, intentionally take time, for stories like hers. Again, for those of us who have not spent a lot of time with the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, The book of Judges is largely a story about the suffering of women. It is about the downward spiral of a nation that is without law, that is forgetting God and neglecting the oppressed, the powerless and the disenfranchised within and beyond them. There is one story in the book of Judges that is particularly horrifying and I will be looking at that in a couple of weeks. But for now, let's let's acknowledge that Deborah is kind of a shining beacon of light that pierces the darkness and the brutality and the violence of the rest of this book. Deborah lived in a really different looking world to ours. The only God that she served was Yahweh, seen as a warrior God, so holy, so mighty, that 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 God, they, could supersede the powers of every Egyptian God, part waters for their followers and drop manna from the heavens every morning to sustain their children in the desert. Deborah lived in a land of burnt offerings and blood, a land where one word from a man could mean the instant death of his wife, daughter or slave. A land where stories were not written but were told around uh, fires at night. A land where female characters in those stories largely went nameless or or were entirely defined by their fathers or brothers or husbands. In that world, we meet Deborah, a woman holding court and settling leaders, the one that Israel looks to as its leader. She is the one receiving words from Yahweh and commanding soldiers. That in and of itself, awesome enough, but the best is yet to come. So her military general, Barak, will not go into battle without her. Why, we might wonder. Is he perhaps testing her authority? Is he disbelieving her because she is a woman? Is he simply scared? one member in the parade of cowardly men scattered through the book of Judges. The text doesn't say. But Deborah makes it clear that because of his reluctance, the world will know that this battle, at least this one Israelite victory, is credited to a woman. Yeah. It gets better than that. 
the victory actually goes to two women. So first, there was Deborah, who made the call and led the charge. Bringing up the back was Jael, another woman whose story has become somewhat famous. You may have seen it in memes. After offering food and shelter to the oppressive general Sisera, enemy of Israel, Jael drives a tent peg through his head, securing a resounding defeat over the now-scattered Canaanite army. Look, I am 100% a pacifist. I think Leichhardt Uniting Church is a pacifist community, and I fully recognise that war is an ugly way to talk about hope. But we need to step back into the world of ancient Near East and let go of our modern sensibilities, our modern privileges for just a few minutes in order to really understand the story. You see, back then for the Israelites, military losses, military victories helped them to define their early relationship to the power that they knew as Yahweh. They had no Bible, they had no creeds, they simply had lived experiences with this powerful, holy God. So when they lost battles, they were forced to examine their own faithlessness, disobedience and cruelty. And when they won battles, they were reminded that they were not alone in the universe, that their God was looking out for them. And usually when Yahweh was involved in war, the circumstances were so unusual that they had no choice but to step back and give all glory to the Lord. So at the end of the battle, Deborah breaks into this song of joy. Hear, O ye kings, give ear, O ye princes. I, even I, will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Deborah echoes the song of Miriam after Israel escaped Pharaoh through the Red Sea. Miriam sings, I will sing to the Lord. He has done great things. He threw horse and rider into the sea. Deborah also sings like Mary will sing after God's angel honours her as the vessel of the coming Messiah. Mary sings, I'll wait for this. Mary sings, God brought down rulers from their thrones and raised up the humble. He filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away with nothing. Some of our faith traditions seem as old as stone sometimes shrouded in violence and absolutely patriarchy. So I am that much more grateful for the songs and the victories of these women to light the way for me in times that seem so dark. The songs of Miriam and Deborah are thought by many scholars to be the oldest Hebrew poems, some of the very first first parts of what we now call the Bible to be written down. There's just one more thing I want to mention. Deborah in the reading is described as the wife of Lapidoth. And while that is probably a correct translation of the Hebrew and a normal biblical way to kind of legitimize female characters, another valid reading of that phrase could be woman of fire. There is no distinction in Hebrew between the words woman and wife. And Lapidoth is a plural of the word for flame. Or fire. Names in the Hebrew Bible, really names throughout the Bible, are incredibly meaningful. The meanings of names 
kind of help to define what the story actually is. And Deborah here is no exception. Deborah means honeybee, evoking images of nourishment and sustenance and sweetness. Remember that the promised land was called the land of milk and honey. But Deborah is also a woman of fire, wife of Lapidoth, woman of fire, a torch that Israel was able to follow into the darkness, which eventually culminated in a celebration of victorious light. The gospel is at work in today's story. Not only in the gospel books of the New Testament, the gospel is at work in the Song of Miriam. The gospel is at work here with Deborah. The gospel was at work in Rosemary Aquilina, the judge who recently allowed more than 100 young female athletes in the States to give testimony before sentencing their sexual abuser, Larry Nasser, to prison. The gospel is at work in Deeper Seely and Alex Long and Emma Sproul and Jennifer Taylor Mishi and Carol Hurt and Christina McHale and many, many more. Yahweh gave the Israelites a miraculous pillar of fire to light their way by night as they fled Pharaoh's army. And the stories of the Bible, old and new, are the torches that God gives us all to warm ourselves when the world freezes, to light our way in times of darkness. Yes, we still have to walk the path ourselves, make no mistake, but we obviously need light to see by, to see the path ahead. Light won't make our feet move. Light won't sustain us or make us take the next step. But light gives us bravery to know where we are going, to know who has gone before us, and to know that we are not alone. Turn your attention to yourself now and ask yourself, who am I in this world of movements and arguments and resistance? Who am I if I'm not sure if I can make a difference in the world? When I am tempted to just keep to the status quo or remain silent or back down from a challenge, could I be Deborah? I've experienced sexism within and beyond the church. I have been told that women were never meant to occupy traditionally male spaces like the pulpit, the synod office, or parliament. I have been told that God only places women in leadership as a backup plan when there are no men around to do those jobs. I have been told that the only thing I bring to the pulpit is how pretty I dress. But I know that I don't have to listen to those words because I have Deborah. Here, in perhaps the most patriarchal part of my holy book, is Deborah, woman of fire, who lights the way into battle and claims victories in the name of God and in her own name. So what do you have to cling to when the world seems broken beyond repair? 
and when you have been discouraged for so many years and it kind of seems like justice and equality are so far away from us. You have Eve and Miriam and Deborah. You have Maureen Faruqi and Harriet Tubman, Joan of Arc and Bell Hooks, AOC and Corrie Ten Boom. Each of us fight our different battles. But in looking to these amazing women of fire, all of us can learn to be confident in our own destiny, our own mission, our own identity and our own worth. These women remind us that we are beloved, capable and godly leaders ourselves. These women of fire, these torches help us grasp onto who we are. They help us to become better and stronger and braver. We are not without hope. We are not without light. Amen. Thank you for listening to Reverend Radica's sermon. Let's take a breath, centre and ground ourselves. And if you wish to keep praying, reflecting and journaling, here are some questions for further reflection. What do you feel moved to confess? Who are some tortures you can pay attention to to help light your way in times of darkness? How can you go on to light the way for others? What stands in your way of finding hope and light in Christ? These questions will also be in the show notes. Signing off, have a great day.